0: We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson and
1: Jasmine Allnut. And guess what we're here for? Women worth knowing. That's right. Should I have waited and let them guess? Or I think we know that. I yeah. think it, I, we don't <laughs> want that dead air time. Yeah, right? like, that's awkward. Oh, wait,
0: are they doing something different? <laughs> no, because you know what? There's so many women that are worth knowing. And I can't wait till heaven <laughs> because it talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 that we will know Mm -hmm. even as we're known. And I would love to hear these stories. And I just, and I know God loves stories. And I know the Bible reads as one story after another, one true story after another. And I'm sure that heaven is filled with stories. In fact, it talks about, on different occasions, the books. And the books were open and the books. And I think, ooh, ooh how wonderful. Um, even in Psalm 139, all my members were written in your book.
1: Yes. Oh, that's a great way to look at that. I like that. And there's so many stories. We're telling you all these stories and you can read biographies with more details, but even those don't have all the details of these people's lives. We will mm-hmm. know that more, like you said, when we get to heaven. It's so mm-hmm. great. And there's already people that I can't wait
0: to you know mm-hmm. meet. And mm-hmm. some of them are people that I've met, honestly, through studying for this uh, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I want to meet this person. Like Elizabeth Blackwell, <laughs> Emily Blackwell, Anne Preston. Oh. You know, some of these ones that we've done. <laughs> they're all doctors. I, I want to meet the do- doctors. Yeah, doctors. I Yes, yeah, exactly. I what just, oh, is. Helen Rosevere. Oh, there's one for with sure. With her darling. I wonder if she'll have an English accent in heaven. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, just I all these. See. And then, of course, <laughs> we both want to meet Gladys Elward. And all our missionary friends. Amy Carmichael. Yes. There are just so many. And I think that as I read
1: and as Jasmine reads, they become friends don't they absolutely they are definitely friends of ours i know i've yeah i've been amazed at all that i've gotten out of this like you said even i've taught on some of these but now i'm meeting new ones new women and so it is so fun yeah i love that and i get inspired
0: i get inspired and i want to emulate these women and that's what we're hoping you know if you've got daughters We'd like them to be listening. Everybody loves a story. Yeah. Everybody
1: loves a story, which reminds me. That's really true. We have a story today. Yes, we do. Whoa, nice segue. Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Yes, we have a story. We're bringing um, another mystic uh, to you. So today we are going to be looking at Teresa of Avila. And she is considered... Probably, honestly, if you look at the course of Spanish history, she's one of the most famous and beloved women in Spanish history. That's interesting. Um, Yeah, I actually, um, I took my bachelor's degree in Spanish, and so we had to do Spanish literature classes and stuff like that. And there was a big emphasis on Teresa of Avila, actually. I had to read some of her writings, and they really emphasize her as a key that figure. That is interesting. All that. I read was Amelia and the Bandits. That oh, was in oh, my Spanish class. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> or El Cid. A lot of right. people are you know, familiar with that. Brian loves El Cid. Oh, gosh. So
0: her real name, though, was—can you say yes.
1: that? Yes. Teresa de Cepeda y Ahumada. That's how you would say her real name. Okay, wait. Do it one more, because you Teresa did Teresa de so well. Cepeda y Ahumada. Very good. So she was— yeah, like I said, I better know how to do that if I <laughs> did my degree in Spanish. But that was her real name. But she was born in Avila, Spain. So that's, I guess everybody just decided Short- that was such a <laughs> mouthful. Forget it. Yeah, we'll just tell you where she's from. <laughs> so she became Teresa of Avila, or Avila. She was one of 10 kids. Wow. And her ancestry was Jewish, which would have been really controversial oh, in medieval Spain. Yes. Yeah, medieval Spain was, gosh, historically, they were notoriously prejudiced against Jews do you in think Spain.
0: any of that had to do with the fact of the Moors?
1: Yeah, because the I would imagine that played a role. I mean, there were other reasons. Because the Jews were often vilified throughout Europe yes. for different reasons. But yes, with the Moors, and which were And if you Muslim, don't know
0: who the Moors are, these are the Muslims that begin to try to move into Spain mm-hmm. and take over Spain. Um, a great story is El Cid. You can watch the movie <laughs> with that? Charlton Heston. It's one of my husband's favorite movies. But it gives you... <laughs> (laughs) Sophia Loren, it gives you a little bit of the background of what was happening in Spain. And Mm so it kind of turned into the the Catholic Church trying to keep the Muslims out of Spain, but the Mm -hmm. Muslims had lots of money. And lots of power. So they found other inroads into
1: Spain. Yeah, they were pretty insidious. A lot Mm -hmm. of people don't realize, like, even years before this, in the 8th century, actually, the Muslims came into Central Europe. Like, they almost took over Europe. Um, But Charles Martel, I'm not going to get into that, but he kicked them out. It was just—it's really kind of crazy. (laughs) Well, you know
0: what? Because I was reading something interesting because I was reading about Muhammad. Mm. And his idea was to evangelize for Islam the merchants. Because yeah. he felt like if he could, first of all, they were the merchants were mercenaries. They only cared about money. And when he came to them and said, look, you know, I'll pay you to do this. And if you don't do this, I'll kill you. They said, OK, you yeah. know, we'll become Muslims. So they converted to Islam and then he sent them everywhere to evangelize. And so hmm. that was another way they went with um,
1: money. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is also interesting because the Jews were known as, you know, the the more wealthy and affluent, good business people. Right. And merchants themselves. And a lot of a lot of Europeans, for whatever reason, they just got bitter, jealous. So there's just always this stigma with the Jews. Well, and so spiritual, that, don't you think, too? Well, I oh, mean, absolutely. Satan has always we been trying deeper, to yeah. right. Yep. Absolutely. As we read in
0: Revelation, the dragon's always trying to kill the
1: the woman, which represents Israel too. Absolutely. And so that just unfortunately, that stigma, it had carried on from her grandfather's time to her own. Um, and it was sad because sometimes Jews would be forced to convert to Christianity in Catholic Spain, you know, um, mm-hmm. but they were still suspected, ostracized, sometimes even oppressed, even if they tried to like, OK, we'll just kind of go with the culture. Or what We'll do what you guys want us to do. So that was really unfortunate. Teresa's parents, though, they um, had, I don't know, somehow convinced their town in Avila that they were devout Catholics. And so uh, by Teresa's time, there was still, like I said, that kind of hint of Jewish stigma, but they were able to prosper pretty well. Her parents actually were pretty wealthy and very devout Catholics. They distanced themselves from their Jewish roots and raised their kids uh, in Catholicism. And so Teresa showed great devotion to God from an early age. In fact, when she was only seven, <laughs> she and her brother ran away from home to go to the Moors, actually, and go be beheaded for Christ. She wow. thought, we need to go become martyrs to show that we really love God. Oh, my. Very de- I know she's yes. seven. It's like, seven. What? what's wrong yes. with you, kid? So, but it's kind of interesting because, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to those times when you're a little kid and you want to run away from home, you know, for whatever reason, whether you're mad at your mom or you just want an adventure or something. And so, So it's kind of cute. As with any running away from home experience that children have, something went wrong. In this case, uh, their uncle saw them as they were running out of town. They were actually all the way to the outskirts of town heading off who knows where. And he's Mm -hmm. like, what are you guys doing? Went and took them, brought them home. So that kind of, you know, stomped that out. I think mom and dad kept an eye on her after that. (laughs) So you could see she was just so passionate. I want to serve God. But when she became a teenager, that devotion kind of faded out a little bit, and she began to get a little bit distracted by worldly things. Um, Her mom was a a God fearing Catholic woman, but uh, she was really, she had a real weakness for. chivalric romance novels. Oh, okay, so,
0: so they were like, around there. They had
1: medieval romance novels. Now, I will say they're not as steamy as the ones you're thinking of today. Those are a little bit like, whoa, you know, those scandalous covers and stuff like that. It wasn't quite to that level, but it was all about romance and knights and shining armor, all of this stuff. And so it's it sounds a little bit silly to us, but back then it could become a real addiction, and it actually was. For well, Teresa. there's no television. There's no yes, movies. You right, find I your entertainment, mm-hmm. and so it really distracted her, and she really started getting more interested in you know just boys and fashion and those kind of things. Kind of put God on the shelf a little bit. Uh, we'll see that later with Madame Guyon. A lot of a lot of girls went through that um, that time, even though they were you know oh I want to be devout, but I also want this. Mm-hmm. So uh, she was very close to her mom, and her mom died when um, Teresa was only 15 years old. And she was so distraught over her mom's death, her dad didn't really know how to process all of that. And that happens sometimes with widowers, you know, fathers with their kids. They're trying to process their own grief, aren't sure how to help their kids. And so her father did what a lot of people would do back then. He sent her to a nunnery, to a convent for guidance. He thought, well, maybe um, she could get some spiritual stability um, just in this place of seclusion. So she went off to an Augustinian convent. And, you know, Teresa wasn't necessarily, obviously, she wasn't there for spiritual reasons. Her dad was just trying to help her get through her emotional problems that he didn't know how to deal with. (laughs) So she goes in and thinks, gosh, these Augustinians, they're too strict. And so she kind of just resigned herself to being a nun. She didn't actually want it. You know, that wasn't what she wanted for her life. Uh, she wrote, honestly, the trials and distresses of being a nun could not be greater than those of purgatory. <laughs> this decision then to enter the religious life seems to have been inspired by servile fear more than by love. And so, uh, again, not exactly the the greatest motivations. It's far cry from where she had been when she was a little girl. But later, she would develop a more love-motivated relationship with God, but for the time being, she really was not feeling it here at the Augustinian convent. And so she left when she got a little older to join a more, this sounds strange, but a more posh Castilian convent for wealthy, privileged women. It sounds weird to think of a convent being posh, but, you know, some of the more upper-class girls who decided to join the convent went there. So it was a little more... And,
0: you know, a lot of of these convents weren't about the Lord. No, not all of them were. Yeah. They were about prestige or what to do with your daughter that you didn't know how to handle. Mm -hmm.
1: And so and that's why they needed reform, as we're Mm -hmm. going to see, because Mm -hmm. there was a lot of, uh, you know, just worldly motivation or selfish motivations, a lot of things going on there. So not surprisingly, Teresa was kind of just spiritually dead, I guess you could say, during this time. And yet in 1538, so she was about, what, 23 or 21 years old. Sorry, am I counting right? Anyway, so 23, somewhere in there (laughs) in her early 20s. Two years after she took her monastic vows there, um, she became seriously ill. And this continued kind of on and off until 1554. So like, what, 15, 16 years, she's battling with illness on and off. And her relationship with the Lord was kind of this roller coaster throughout the whole thing. That happened with a lot of these folks in, you know, the monastic life. As we see, they go through these ups and downs, you know, Partly, too, because of the whole thing, like, can I earn God's favor? And then, you know, coming to an understanding of grace and all of that sort of a thing. I mean, there's just this whole process a lot of them went through. Um, But during this time, one of her biographers said that she slowly moved from a frivolous, insincere nun to a dedicated Christian in full service to God. Mm. And so what happened was when she was 39, she I mean, this is so far down the road now. She had a true uh, conversion where she really realized what Jesus had done for her uh, in spite of her. And so that's kind of a big thing, a big revelation, especially for somebody raised in Catholicism, that it was about what Jesus did. So she understands like, oh, my gosh, I've been faithless and I haven't really cared about Jesus, but he's just loved me faithfully through all of this. And she actually attributed the Confessions of St. Augustine to really as an influential uh, book in her conversion. And he talks a lot about God's grace to us, you know, when we don't deserve it. And, And so, I mean, that really spoke to her. So when she got saved she actually had uh, some mystical experiences and I'm not sure how long those lasted it was pretty uh, this pretty intense period but after they passed she found uh, such a, a zeal in her life for uh, serving the Lord like from a, a true heart a heart of love and gratitude now for what God had done for her and so in 1560 she starts uh, working as a reformer and a uh, founder of various Carmelite convents this was a different order was the the Carmelites And she's actually known as the initiator of the Carmelite reform movement. That's interesting. Yeah, I know. Because like we were saying, again, there Mm -hmm. was a lot of, um, you know, just there were a lot of convents and monasteries that had kind of become worldly or places where a lot of bad stuff was going on. I mean, we're coming out of the Middle Ages here. And during the Middle Ages, uh, there were a lot of uh, monks in like homosexual relationships and having mistresses. Um, You know, some of the women were doing the same with men. So there, there was a lot of stuff going on. Now, I had read
0: good. that her born-again experience actually came out of an illness. Yes, it was out of her illnesses, yeah. That was, you know, this illness. It and woke that, her up. Mm-hmm. Right, and that she progressed, what she said, from the lowest stages of recollection to the devotions of silence and even to the devotions of ecstasy. Hmm. Um you know, that during her sickness, that that's when she really began to recognize the Lord. It's interesting mm-hmm. that it would
1: come through sickness, yeah. too. And like you're saying, the ecstatic experience, there's that mystical element. That's one that's of the right. reasons she's called a mystic was because of some of those experiences she had. Much like these other women we've talked about, you know, Julian of Norwich had her visions. Uh, Catherine of Siena had her spiritual marriage to Christ. These were all things that mm-hmm. uh, the mystics kind of We're treasured. actually going to
0: later on get into two American mystics Ooh. who had... Uh, some of those um, same experiences. Okay. Right around, it, it wouldn't have been that much longer. You know, mm-hmm. I think we're talking about the, because they would have come over uh, right after the Mayflower. So it's. Oh, okay. Early colonial. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So these okay. are the 1500s. And so this mm-hmm. would have been sometime around the
1: 15 or 1600s. Ooh, okay. there's, yeah. There's a little teaser there. Mm-hmm. Right. There so, you go. <laughs> uh, Teresa, so she really inspired, obviously, through her reform movement, a lot of people. She actually became really good friends with St. John of the Cross, um, another well known mystic figure, and he joined her in a lot of her reform work. Um, She was a really gifted administrator and a leader, but she faced a lot of opposition to her reform. Uh, Not everybody was excited about this. Like I was saying, some people enjoyed the carnality in the convents and monasteries. They didn't want to change. And they also, you know, there was a, they would try to go out and get money from the people and stuff, uh, get people to feel bad for them so they would pocket the money. And so- uh, a lot of Carmelites even resented the changes that she was trying to bring and trying to make it more spiritually motivated. In fact, this is kind of a—I I didn't realize this was her, but I'd heard this quote before. Um, once she was praying about all of the the trials she was experiencing and her frustrations, like, man, Lord, why is this so hard to get people to want to serve you? Aren't they supposed to be serving you? <laughs> We're in a convent here. Um, but she felt like the Lord said to her, but this is how I treat my friends. And Teresa replied, No wonder you have so few friends, Lord. Oh my. So I know. So it's kind of like a but I guess it kind of, if nothing else, shows that she kinda of had a sense of humor about the whole thing. So Yeah, and I don't believe
0: that's the way the Lord treats his friends no, either. I know.
1: I don't know if that was the Lord, but it's kind no. of just used as an illustration of her wit. Right. Kind of like, well, I guess
0: that's just how it is as a Christian. So um she did yeah, well, I, I I even read that some of those around her thought that her experience was diabolical and not divine. Oh dear. So it was even accused of being diabolical. I don't know who the gainsayers were.
1: Mm, all right. Yes. Some people probably thought, like, mm-hmm. how dare you do this? So she faced a lot of obstacles and opposition, like I said, but the the work did grow and uh, the reformed convents were really blessed and um, really thrived. And so uh, in 1567, she was actually told that that should be her main focus and occupation, establishing the Reformed Carmelite convent, So that became her life work for about 15 years until she died in 1582. But as much as her convents, her Reformed convents, were significant to the, you know, Catholic, what we would call the Catholic Reformation, because what we don't realize, we're going to talk later about the Protestant Reformation, which is more familiar and well-known. But there was a Catholic response to the Reformation. We think um, often they just went to war with the Mm -hmm. Protestants, which they did. Some of them did. But there were a lot of Catholics who who um, really appreciated what the reformers were trying to do. There were people that saw and they re- they recognized, you know, Luther's kind of right on some of this. We are kind of missing the ball here and mm-hmm. we're not, um, you know, living by faith and we aren't teaching the scriptures, all of that sort of a thing. So you do see elements of uh, the Catholic Church and people in it, kind of like the mystics, who wanted reform and a return to relationship with Jesus instead of just works and things like that. Now, a lot of these people didn't want to leave the church. They didn't want to go as far as uh, Calvin or Luther or some of the reformers, but they did want to see renewal and revival from within. And so Teresa kind of comes under that umbrella with her Carmelite reform. She actually was a part of the overall Catholic reformation that was happening. And so because of that, her, her writings actually were what most influenced the church. And like I said, Spanish history and literature because, you know, her works are considered great literary classics. And so um, it's interesting because Teresa herself actually didn't want to write anything. She had kind of a humility about her. Like, why would I write down my life and experiences like I have so much to tell people? But her superiors ordered her to do it. That's interesting. (laughs) They said, I know, which is strange, but... They're like, no, you need to record this. Uh, You know, you have a lot to offer here. We want you to write these things. So she wrote several important works. There were three in particular, um, her autobiography, and then another work called The Way of Perfection. And um, then her most important one, which was called The Interior Castle. And the interior castle is considered to be of equal importance with uh, the Confessions of Saint Augustine. So it kind of, you know, the the man who had inspired her apparently influenced her book and and made it just a classic, very similar uh, kind of renown. So that's quite a statement because the Confessions of Saint Augustine is like super important in you know in terms of Christian history and stuff like that. So uh, the interior castle is is kind of an analogy of spiritual life and prayer. And so, what she does is she describes the soul as a, a castle with all these different rooms, you know, and different branches and wings and all of that sort of a thing. But the main uh, focus of that castle is the central room, which is the place of communion with God. And so, the whole goal of the book is to teach the reader how to enter the castle through prayer and and get into that place of deepest communion with God you know out of all these you know wings and outside rooms to come into that central place and really get close to the Lord's heart and so Because of that book in particular, um, and and just all of her works in general, uh, most of her writings deal with the prayer life. Like I said, especially *Interior Castle*, and because of that, that's another reason why she's often associated with mysticism, because the mystics were uh, very much focused on prayer life, meditation, contemplation, being set apart to God. In fact, uh, it was interesting. um, Michelle Yule, she's doing one of our. She's. I don't know when her episodes are going to air, but she did some podcasts with Cheryl, and um, she was emailing me actually this week about uh the anchorites and we talked about that a little bit with julian of norwich those people that were just dedicated to living in seclusion and just committing themselves to a life of prayer that was a very special unique branch of uh, of the mystics and of you know just christian service were those people that really focused on that julian of norwich is one of those and um but didn't
0: teresa vavila avila Avila, mm -hmm. didn't she also start two carmelite
1: houses for men The Carmelites were men as well. A lot of people don't realize that. And St. John of the Cross would have been helping her and partnering Mm -hmm. with some of that work. So, And so she was a little bit different. Yes, she was committed to the prayer life, like I said, which is a definite trademark of the mystics. But it's interesting because she differed from somebody like Julian of Norwich uh, and was more like Catherine of Siena in having that more practical aspect. She was more of a practical mystic Mm -hmm. um, who had the spiritual depth, the emphasis on prayer, But also boots on the ground in wanting to serve others. And Mm -hmm. even just like like Cheryl said, I mean, even the foresight, like we want to also establish these uh, monasteries for men and set up homes for them as well. Uh, You know, she was a visionary and and that kind of a thing. In fact, uh, where, like I said, John of the Cross and so many others like Julian and some of the anchorites where they wanted to disengage from the world through asceticism. Teresa believed that serving others in the world would actually accomplish the same purpose. So a a different angle, but the whole goal was to be set apart to God, just in a different means. As one author explained, spiritual progress is measured neither by self-imposed penance nor by the sweetest pleasures of mystical experiences, but by growth in constant love for others and an increasing desire within for the will of God. So she felt like, I can be set apart just as much as those anchorites, and it's not that she didn't respect or appreciate them. She was very close to John of the Cross, who was a total ascetic. But she said, I can be set apart to the Lord just by doing all I do unto him in serving others and just really focusing on ministering to other people and pursuing the will of God in whatever that looks like. So it's, it's, it's interesting just to see the different nuances within mysticism, really. So um, Teresa served tirelessly until 1582. But wait, 1576. Want to back up? Go for it.
0: Yes, 1576 when the non-Carmelites begin to persecute her. Oh, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, go ahead. I just know that she ended up going to Toledo. And I think that's important because Jasmine and I were actually in Toledo, and this is during the Inquisition. And she actually, at one point, was kind of targeted by the inquisitors. Oh wow! And and obviously, God intervened, and she wrote to King Philip of Spain, and he sent a reprieve, and that's how the Carmelite order was saved. Thank God! Was through that reprieve and through her intercession and her letter. But I think it's interesting that for a time she
1: actually lived in Toledo because Toledo was one of the, what do you call it, headquarters Mm -hmm. of the Inquisition. Yeah, the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Some people might be familiar with that through the Monty Python sketch. There's this joke thing about nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. But it's kind of like a famous, infamous, I guess I should say, um, aspect of the Catholic Church that, uh, you know, unfortunately, it it went through the Dominican order primarily because the Dominicans were founded by Dominic in order to try to uh, teach and lead the heretics back to the true faith, the true Mm -hmm. Catholic faith. Well, he went with a good heart, a right heart. But the pope at the time, Pope Innocent III, who was super corrupt— he said, "Nah, don't try to convince them through love or through gentleness. You need to use force to get these heretics to join the church and and to, you know, repent," or quote unquote. And so they began to use more pressure tactics, and that was unfortunately when that got to Spain, it was just full-blown like You know, putting people on the rack and And torturing them. We saw those, Uh,
0: we saw um, chains on this one church in Toledo. Yeah. That were like what? They were like 20 feet up on that. That was crazy. Yeah. Where they would hang the heretics, which. Really weren't heretics at all. These were (laughs) reformers. These were people who were trying to go back to the Bible.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And of course,
0: Jews too.
1: Yep. So. uh, Yeah. So then obviously, Teresa had rubbed some people the wrong way for her to get, you know, become a target as well. Well, what
0: is it that Paul said that anyone who lives godly in Mm. Christ will suffer persecution? Yeah. And uh, this is what happened to her as well. Yeah. Okay. Now you can go on.
1: No, no, that's okay. I was just. Wrapping up that she, Mm. you know, served tirelessly in spite of, again, not just, again, opposition within her own order, but being targeted by the Spanish Inquisition, all of that stuff. Um, And so she actually died uh, in 1582, quoting verses from the Song of Solomon. Mm. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. So Teresa once said, I like this quote, she said, God would speak to many hearts, but the world makes too much noise. Wow. And so, you know, I mean, that's there's, you know, with all of these folks, you know, the mystics. Yeah, they <laughs> practice some things that seem unusual to us. But I think we can always find some little nugget there, some little lesson um, or takeaway from their lives of of devotion because they really did love God. And there was a sincerity there uh, in their prayer lives and in their um, desire to be set apart to him. And also she didn't use aggression to Mm -hmm.
0: try to reform. Mm -hmm. You know, she really sought to do it through love and through biblical means and, and especially through prayer. Yes. And so those are the things we can appreciate, and that's why she's
1: a woman worth knowing. She absolutely is. (laughs) So thank you for joining us today on this episode of Women Worth Knowing, and as always— if you have somebody that you would like to share with us, right, Cheryl, like a, it could be a, a book about somebody. We a have book? gotten a few of yes. those that we need to read. And, uh, yeah, but, <laughs> uh, or,
0: you know, a sister, a mother, a cousin, a, a neighbor, a Sunday school teacher, yes. somebody just to give a little shout out to them on Women Worth Knowing. We'd love to do that. Yes,
1: definitely. So please feel free to write to us uh, the website. Well, the email address you can use is WWK at dot com. That stands for Women Worth Knowing, in case you couldn't figure that out. Yes. And you can also just go to our website, women.cccm.com. You can find a link there. Or to Cheryl's website, graciouswords.com, which might be a familiar one to some of you. And if you go there, you can also find a link.
0: And be sure to like us on whatever venue you listen to us on, whether it's Apple or, you know, any of the podcast. Podcast apps and stuff. Apps. Please like us. That just goes a long way. And please tell a friend to listen in and hear this story of a woman worth knowing. Yes, please. So until (laughs) next week, we've got some more mystics coming at you. This is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. And we want to say thank you and bye. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk@cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Brodersen and Jasmine Allnut.